calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Podiobooks.com, an association with pjvalentine.net and writersexchange.com, presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Valentine. The six travelling companions woke sore and none too jovial the next morning. No one had got a proper sleep, as they'd set watches through the night. Some habits were impossible to break. Ashima, who had pulled the last shift, sat propped up against a knurled tree as the sun levered itself above the surrounding mountains. It had been a hard night, her mind whirling and spinning on itself. She watched the first soft rays of light strike her friends, old and new. It was over a year since she'd seen her cherished companions from the wolves. That meeting had not been successful. The conversation, she recalled, had been stilted and uncomfortable. She knew that the four of them did not like Garen. They hardly tried to conceal it. Rosa's objection she could, of course, understand, but she'd never seen what had disturbed the others. Now, watching them sleep, feeling curiously protective, Ashima realised how much she'd really missed the men. Skellig seemed hollow without them, and if she was honest with herself, she knew that it was only Garen that kept her there. These men mattered to her too, though, a lot. They were her companions from earlier days, and even while youth was fading, they remained a dear and precious lives, not always easy to live with, but beloved, as she may chuckle to herself. Wouldn't they scoff at her emotions if they knew? It wasn't the kind of thing they would be at all comfortable with. Guston rolled over with a groan. <sighs> Morning already? Where's breakfast, Ash? She favoured him with a scathing look and gave him a friendly shove with her foot. Haven't I told you before? If you aren't going to learn to cook, I'm not going to teach you. Merrick emerged from under his leather coat, blearily rubbing his eyes. Oh! <sighs> You know that's woman's work, Ash. It was an accustomed jibe that she responded to with ease. Her boot hopped under Merrick's feet, tripping him before he could get up properly. Jerris, across the clearing, huddled uncomfortably aware of its separation. The rhythm of their banter ran around it and past it. Real friendship it had never experienced. Rosa got up with a grunt. Oh, I must be getting old. My back feels like a team of guard horses ran over it, and my mouth's full of wool. Oh! Stop your whining. Crinnis shook out his blankets. If you can't stand a night on the ground, then perhaps you'd better find another job. Huh, what job? Keeping Ash's skin in one piece by any chance? While they bantered to a familiar pattern, Merrick surprisingly came over to Jerris. Do you know the road to Skellig well? It shrugged. I've only travelled it once, but not in the best circumstances. <laughs> These aren't any better. Merrick cast a quick look over his shoulder and drew Jerris further away from the others. 
What did you make of those warriors that attacked you? They were very intent on killing us, but didn't stop to say why. Merrick seemed to be sizing it up, deciding if it could be trusted. When the four of us are looking out for Ash, well, there were rumours about the Duke. Do you have an opinion on him? Only what Ash has told me. The other made a face. <clears throat> She's more than a little biased on the subject. We already tried to tell her, but she won't listen. We ran into the chief of the Istan clan. Admittedly, he has no love for the Duke, but he said there were some rumours among the other chiefs that Garen was responsible for Ashimay's death. Death? Yes. The Duke wasn't slow in spreading it around. She was dead. Does she know this? Merrick seemed exhausted by so much talk, but he shook his head slowly. She won't hear a word against him, and if she knew, she'd probably run back all the faster. That could be fatal. What do you want me to do? Just be her friend, which I think you are already. She'll need them in the days to come. Ash doesn't take bad news well, and this is the worst. If she should... What's this? A secret gathering? Ashimay had come up behind them, frighteningly silent for such a tall, armoured person. Jerris managed not to show its shock. <clears throat> we, we were just discussing the best way to get to Skellig. The Duke's Road, of course. She began to tuck loose ends of her red hair and her braid. I've got no time for sightseeing. The road's the straightest and the best. Murrick, standing just behind her shoulder, made the, made the tiniest shake of his head. That is the quickest, Jerris replied slowly. But those men might not be the only ones after us, though the forest is safer, and the Duke won't be expecting you anyway. Yes, she may pause, weighing up her choices. I suppose you're right. Better to get there slowly than not at all. Let's get this little trick moving, then. I know a couple of shortcuts which don't use the road. She turned back to the others and began yelling at her friends to get a move on. Murrick said nothing to Jerris, but went to help. So already, it thought to itself. I'm involved in conspiracies. This is what I didn't like about society in the first place. Seasoned travellers, they were all packed and moving, just after the sun finished its ascent above the mountains. Krenis and Jerris took the lead, their more slender forms allowing them to be quieter between the trees. The other four followed at a little distance. Ashimay felt her heart lift. This is almost how it had been on her very first trip to Skellig. Young, strong, with the feeling that she could do almost anything. Her four friends had shared the same vision as she, joining the Scarlet Wolves, becoming famous and all the rest. They'd all been part of the contingent that made up the annual tithe of warriors from the clans to swell the ranks of the Duke's guards. The journey they'd made back then was tense with excitement. They'd felt honour like a hot sun on their back, and their feet had seemed to fly across the ground. Skellig had been reached so quickly then. From the outer islands, and then from village to village, they'd travelled, gathering recruits all the way. Ashime sighed quietly. Nothing was really quite like the beauty of youth, a power she hadn't appreciated when it was hers. What she wouldn't give for a little of it now. Guston glanced across at her, and the look he gave her told her he was thinking the very same thing. Rosa? Well, Rosa was silent. Things had been strained between them for quite a long time. He'd been happy enough to remain friends before the Duke, but after, he'd grown quite distant. He still smiled, but his eyes told of distrust, which cut her to the quick. Silly that she should be the one to feel guilt, considering the manner of their parting. It was one of those unsaid things, but it still created problems. She guessed part of her still cherished the memories of loving him. 
Ashume had yet to work out a way to get past all that. They travelled at a reasonable pace until noon. Then the four at the rear caught up with the two in the front, so they stopped at a little glade. Jerris and Crinus were seated on a large boulder by a small icy stream and were laughing. Ashime smiled. It made her glad to see that the kind-hearted Crinus had accepted Jerris so easily. The youthful seeming warrior gestured the others over. You've got to see this. Jerris smiled uncertainly and slipped into male form. After a few moments, it went into female. Though Ashume had warned them about it, seeing it was another story. The dappled sunlight played through the trees and smote Jerris's hair into a thousand golden strands. Her amber eyes seemed large and as precious as jewels. Ashime could see the effect written on their faces. They were just men, after all. But she worried about the consequences of Jerris showing them. The female Jerris spoke, her voice still beautiful, like a fall of bird-like notes. I only wanted you to see, so that we are all honest with each other. She slipped back to the between state. Ashime found her mouth dry. No matter how often she'd seen that in the last month, it became no less amazing. The spell was broken a little, enough for the men to talk. Guston, in his typical manner, found the salient point straight away. That's incredible, Jerris. But I can't work out if you're blessed or cursed. A little both, I'm afraid. But I can only be what I am. They settled down around the rock and broke out the succulent ruby berries they'd collected along the way, as well as some dried meat. Now that the subject had been broached, the men's curiosity knew no propriety. They were utterly without shame and didn't hesitate to ask questions Ashime had thought of, but never dared to voice. Is that why you were living at the bottom of the ravine? Guston asked, cramming some blackberries into his mouth. Jerris gave a sharp little nod. What happened? Crinus was eating his more sedately. Merrick, his eyes dark with knowledge, replied, Slavers. Rousseau knocked back a large swig of cider from his drinking horn before offering it to the others. Slavers are just a story to scare children with. Crisfell hasn't any operating for generations. Ashima had to disagree. You'd be surprised, Rousseau. Garen's had a lot of trouble with them. They operate mostly in the outer islands, but they're getting bold. Only two months ago they found a group operating right out of Skelligtown. I imagine they'd find Jerris here a pretty attractive acquisition, Crinus said. Jerris tried to make light of the discussion. You all seem to know my story better than I do. Its head came up like a startled deer. Merrick raised a hand, always the most sensitive to the sounds of the forest. The others were instantly silent. Merrick jerked his head, indicating out of the clearing. Crinus slipped from the rock and unslung his bow. He moved noiselessly in that direction. Behind him, others drew swords and waited. He peered over some bushes and then replaced his bow. Reassured, the rest moved up behind him. Just beyond the clearing, the land dipped into a lush valley. Some distance from where they stood, they could see a small caravan. It was brightly painted and festooned with all sorts of pots and pans, as well as streamers of bright fabric. A peddler's wagon, it didn't look like it was going anywhere at the moment. Obviously, they'd found some boggy ground down there, for the right front wheel of the wagon was sunk down at a frightening angle. A lone man strained at the rear of it, while a woman hauled on the bridle of the poor horse. None of them looked in particularly good moods. From where they stood, they could hear her berating the man in colourful language. Jerris pulled up its hood and lingered in the trees, while the others trotted down the slope to help them out. Seeing such a large group of armed warriors approaching, the two peddlers looked about them and pulled faster at the horse's bridle. 
Only when the five of them got close enough for the Scarlet Wolves badge they all wore to be seen did the couple calm down. The woman stood with her arms folded, glaring at the man. Nee, see what you've done, she snapped. You make us a charity case. She immediately focused on Eshume, her dark brown eyes sharpening. You? I know you. But they said you were dead. Eshume left the men to get the cart out, her heart constricting in her chest. Dead? The female peddler seemed not to notice her expression. I told Ursi, you couldn't be. But the notice was up in every village we passed through. The heaving of the wagon and the accompanying jangle of the kitchenware caught her attention. Oi, what's worse than one man's efforts? A group of men. Hey, you lot. I'd appreciate it if there was a cart left after you finished. She rounded on the grunting, red-faced men and began to offer her advice. Luckily, Eshime's friends were too winded to reply. She stood there, watching the whole scene as if from a great distance. Slowly turning, she looked back up the slope. From here, Jerris was just another dark shape against the green of the trees, yet she felt its eyes on her. Garin thought she was dead. He honestly thought she was dead. All this time she'd been recovering, secure in the knowledge that he wouldn't miss her. Her mission to Sitkem would have taken at least three months to complete by boat. How she imagined her unexpected return to his welcoming arms. Why would he think she was dead? Ashimay had never considered herself a speedy thinker, but even she knew there was something dreadfully wrong here. She was suddenly sick to her stomach. Who were those men that had attacked her on the bridge? And if everyone thought she was dead, why did the second band come after her? And how did they know she'd survived the fall? Worst of all, why did Garin think she was dead? By the sweet mother, what was going on? Oi, she looks like she's going to chuck. The peddler woman watched her keenly, as if afraid she might sully her wagon. At the sound of her voice, Ashime spun on her heel, her face gone suddenly hard. Striding over to the others, she added her shoulder to the wagon wheel. They all heaved, and with the horse practically folding in on its fetlocks, they managed to get the wagon out of the rut. Unfortunately, in the process, those standing behind were splashed with bucket loads of mud. The peddler, brown from the waist down, began to thank them profusely. Still the woman clucked to herself from the sidelines. Oh, sweet mother! Gustin flicked his hands, mud flying. I really didn't need that. Rozo's hair had received a liberal dosing. He tried vainly to wring it out. It's probably going to be a while for a bath. Merrick nudged him. What's Ash doing? From where they stood, it seemed as though she was galloping back up the hill. The peddler woman, now her cart was rescued, was in a better mood. I still can't believe it. The Duke's messenger, alive. Crinus groaned. I have a bad feeling about this. The four warriors hurried after her, leaving the peddlers to their wagon. They struggled to catch up, but when they did, her expression didn't bold well. A veritable thunderclouds clashed in her green eyes. Why didn't you tell me? Why, in the mother's name, didn't you tell me that Garin thought I was dead? Why would you want me to go on a forest stroll with you? Just for the sake of old times, was it? Guston tried to grab hold of her. Because we're your friends. Breaking his grip, Eshime whirled about. For a brief moment, it looked as though she might actually strike him. Pausing to gain the upper hand, her eyes shimmered with tears of anger. Finally, fighting down the rage, she managed in a strangled tone. If you were my friends, Gustin, 
You wouldn't keep things from me. Now, if you don't mind, I'm heading back to the road, getting a horse. The day after tomorrow, I'll be back in Skellig. You're welcome to come with me if you want to or not. Quite frankly, it's all the same to me. Oh, the wind's nothing to worry about, my lord. Hurst, the Fire Queen's captain, was leaning close to Garen, his breath sour. The Duke frowned and raised his eyes to the horizon. The sea had been calm enough when they set sail, but ominous-looking grey clouds were massing in the distance. They could all feel the electricity in the air, the tension. The captain was not to be relied on. He was far too afraid of displeasing his Duke. Without bothering to reply, Garen made quickly for the small cabin where his goods were stored. Only when he had the iron-bound box actually in his hands did Garen feel any better. The truth was that he didn't know the full extent of his ally's powers. Giselle had never shown him that she could read his thoughts. Perhaps she'd hidden that from him. He straightened and pulled his cloak about him. This would work. Sometimes a leader simply had to risk and gamble. Nothing would be achieved otherwise. Still, he kept the box with him when he went up to the deck once more. Waves were starting to crash over the prow of the ship, and Garen had to brace himself against the mast. If only his mission had allowed him to include a mother, all this bad weather could have been avoided. But of course, his objective would have met with divine disapproval. His stomach lurched. They all heard it. The scream of wood against wood, the complaint of nails being tugged free. The poor fire queen cried out in agony and shuddered under an unholy assault. Chaos broke loose as the sailors realized the ship was breached. Water rushed in from the stern as more planks were torn loose, and sailors were plucked from their stations and tossed about like debris. Garen looked about as Fire Queen rumbled beneath his feet. Do something! he yelled at Hurst over the cries of terror about them. The captain was stunned. None of his years of experience could help him understand what was happening to his vessel. As the surf pounded over the side, huge shapes could be seen. Talons like curved sickles were tearing apart the ship from beneath them and the sea was getting wilder. Garen quickly strapped the box to his chest using his sash. Certainly he was done for now if he lost it. The Fire Queen was going under, her valiant form surrendering to the impossible forces rending her apart. All about, sailors took their chances and leapt into the sea as her mast began to collapse. Wiping Hurst from his mind, Garen made to follow suit. Something dark and heavy caught his attention in the corner of his eye, but it was too late to do anything about it. He raised his arm to protect himself, but the falling rigging clipped his forehead. In no time to even scream, he fell into the cold arms of the sea. Jerris felt and looked awkward on a horse. Riding was a skill that it had never had the opportunity to acquire. It was concentrating on Crinus's back ahead of it and trying not to succumb to the swaying beneath it. The nearer they got to Skelligtown, the more Jerris felt nervous. Perhaps this was what the horse was feeling. It had been years since Jerris had been to Skellig, and it marvelled at its own daring. But surely by now it would be safe. Looking back over one shoulder, Jerris tried to copy the others. Rosa was asleep in the saddle, even in this awkward pace called a trot, but the other two were talking in low voices between themselves. Before Jerris might not have worried they were discussing it, but it knew it was not the case. Eshime, meanwhile, wove tense circles about them, obviously wanting to gallop full tilt back to Skellig. Jerris was curiously pleased that she didn't. 
Her anger, frustration and fear were whispers in the back of its mind. It was certainly a curious sensation, but not an unexpected one. Its alien blood murmured to her, sometimes barely felt, sometimes booming. The last day had been hardened by taunt silence between Ashime and the warriors. It was still impressed at them for even coming. Ashime had not made it easy for them with her icy silences and enraged looks. Jerris guessed that that was what real friendship was, putting up with your friend because you cared. Skellington. It glowered darkly under the evening sky, as if absorbing the light. If the castle was the high point of the Duke of Crisfell's kingdom, then its accompanying town was the lowest. Occupying large curved bay directly below the castle, Skellington had grown up to service the needs of the fortress. And there were needs, all right. Like some drunken harlot, it sprawled ungainly against the natural beauty of the bay. Unfortunately, a visitor had no choice but to pass through the town. The only road going up to the castle ran right through it and straight up to the tower gate. Jerris pulled its cowl about it, found its hands were trembling. It had been seven years since it had slunk from here. But at least it had better company now. Guston spurred his horse down the hill until he was abreast with Ashime. She made no acknowledgement. Come on, Ash, he said, leaning closer, the better to judge her mood. Let's at least stop at the hungry beaver. It's almost dusk, and the tower gate closes soon. We won't make it. Ashime sighed. Staying angry with her friends was something that even she had to accept couldn't last forever. Oh, all right. It would be good to get a jug of cider at the beaver. I think you lot owe me one, at least. The others had moved up once they saw Guston had survived. Crinus fished around in his purse. That last time we drank at drained me of funds, Ash. How about you, Rosa? One thing you couldn't call the long-haired warrior was mean. Strangely, he always had money when it really counted. He jangled his own rather fuller purse. All right, hint taken. As long as you promise not to dump me in the barn like last time. I need a good soft bed tonight. So the company rode into Skelligtown in better spirits. The town, in its usual fashion, smelled. Combinations of bad sewage systems and the fact that its other occupation was fishing hardly kept it fresh. Guston inhaled great gobs at the foul air. Ugh, the sweet smell of home. He shoved Crinus, as if enlivened by it. We've been away too long. Laughing loudly and shouldering their horses through the throng that even at this hour crowded the streets, they made quite a spectacle. Soon Jerris realised it was Ashime that most people were looking at. Twisting around in her saddle, she watched as knots of people whispered in her wake. Some made divine protection symbols and turned quickly away. Others just stared, open-mouthed. She sat visibly taller in the saddle under that inspection. Murak rode side by side with Jerris, and both remained aloof from the roughhousing of the others. Scanning the crowd with troubled eyes, Murak commented that nothing looked any different. Fishwives, dirty children, the odd street harlot, a few faces he vaguely remembered. Still, Jerris couldn't help wishing that Ashime wasn't attracting so much attention. There were plenty of people here it wanted to avoid. To itself, it wondered if the hungry beagle was the best place to go. Before it could say anything to Ashime, though, they arrived. The Hungry Beaver had been the unofficial mess hall of the Scarlet Wolves, and those passing through usually stopped in for a drink. It was the only tavern in town allowed to have tables and benches outside. That little law had been ignored in the past so that the Scarlet Wolves could loll about and be seen, a tradition that still continued, even after the unit was disbanded. Ashime called less frequently than most, but still wasn't adverse to the odd tipple here. 
It was one of her many habits that Garen had never approved of. Leaping down, the four in front swiftly tied up their horses and burst inside. Merrick and Jerris followed more sedately. Whatever you could say about the hungry beaver, it was clean and tidy, at this hour anyway. Wooden walls and floors polished to a high sheen, the smell of soap and wax lingering in the air. It had always been considered a miracle that Kustel managed to keep it that way. But then he had a large, rambunctious family to help. The brood, clothed in pale green, dodged and slipped from customer to customer, carrying brimming jugs with real professionalism. It looked like Kustel had a dynasty on his hands. Tonight was no different than any other. It was the usual collection of merchants, warriors, and travelling clansmen. They came to enjoy the huge open fire and Kustel's legendary brewing skills. The group entered. Ashime was not so recovered from her previous mood that she seemed a different person. The general hubbub of the tavern clicked off. Even Kustel's children stood rooted to the spot. A lot of very pale faces were staring in her direction. Sweet mother, someone whispered. She looks just like she's alive. She's back to avenge her death, a voice roared. The others, including Jerris, waited to see what she'd do. Taking a bold stride further into the room, Ashime sketched an elaborate bow, and with a wicked grin announced, I would think that returning from the dead entitles you to a free drink or two. Ashime! The spell was broken. Among the general roar of relief, Kustal rushed forward. Ashime was almost crushed by the huge bear of a man, his bristling moustaches and fish breath just a little too close. His scarlet wolf's badge was embedded into her cheek. Crystal, <coughs> Crystal, she managed to gasp. Are you trying to finish the job? The huge bartender held her at arm's length. Oh, I knew it wasn't true, he exclaimed, turning to his customers. Didn't I tell you? <laughs> you, Ashime Regandra, would return and drink my cider once more. Ruzo pushed past the reunion, clapping him on the back as he went. Mother knows, Gustav. Most people would come back from the dead for that. The others made directly for a snug that had been cleared for them by Kustel's eldest. Ashime struggled to free herself, but found herself dragged to the bar, where already drinks were appearing as the patrons celebrated in time on a tradition. This was going to be a long night. They pressed around her, slapping on the back and demanding answers to their questions. Her companions watched from a distance. Well, Rosa, Prentice grinned, it doesn't look like you'll have to leave her open your purse tonight. Already, Crystal's eldest daughter was bearing down on them with full jugs of the house beer. The generous bartender hadn't forgotten them. They swept down on the brew and raised their mugs to Ashime, who was making pleading looks at them over the crowd's head, but there was no chance of a rescue from that quarter. Jera sat quietly, sipping slightly at its drink, while the others laughed and enjoyed the scene. At least, it thought, no chance of anyone in this noticing me. After a while, though, the crowd became noisier. The mass of voices and nearness pushed on its sensitive ears. Years of living on the edge of society had not prepared it for this sudden immersion. Jerris finally gathered its drink and stepped outside for a breath of pure, uncluttered air. Sociability was not one of its skills. Unnoticed, somebody else followed. Garen woke with a shiver. He was so very cold. His head ached, and he felt as if he'd been worked over thoroughly by a Skelligtown bouncer. The gentle lap of the ocean had turned one of his toes to ice, and on his right side the uncomfortable shape of the box was digging into his ribs. It was a surprising collection of aches and pains. 
He lay very still for a moment, his mind feverishly processing what his body was telling him. Mm, hard, wet wood beneath him, so he was obviously floating on part of the remains of the Fire Queen. Who else survived? Apart from the bobbing motion of the waves, there was a definite feeling of a more purposeful forward movement. Pulling his foot in a little and out of the sea, he looked up. The sun had just finished its descent, and he could only just make out vague forms. As he'd gathered, he was lying on a piece of flotsam. But now how he got there was another question, and he was definitely moving forward, and quite hastily. Geron rolled over and hastily pulled his feet in as far as he could. A gigantic tentacle was roped over the makeshift raft. It was oily grey in the remaining light, and as thick as his own body. A rank odour of rotting seaweed assailed him. This was what was pulling him. Taking him, by the look of the stars, to the outer islands, and whatever awaited him there. This was a disturbing development, surely. Geron held on to his calm with grim determination. As long as he had the box, then he had his advantage. It was obvious that someone had decided he was worth saving, but whom? Could it be that shadowy figure, the Alpha, that Giselle had spoken of in hushed tones? Well, if there was a leader, then Garen was confident that he would be able to bargain with it, or, even more excitingly, possibly take its place. He patted the box reassuringly. The contents gave him an edge over those weavers. They would learn respect from him once they saw what it was he contained. Yes, he thought, carefully averting his eyes from the tentacle. Respect would be the first lesson. The night progressed and got louder and bawdier. Kustil's children retired, and the bartender sought at the tavern himself. Soon he was far enough into his cups that he began handing out free drinks to celebrate Eshime Kandra's return from beyond the grave. She was enjoying herself, shaking off the last tendrils of gloom. She and Rosa led a raucous rendition of the Scarlet Wolves' battle anthem, and if they couldn't quite remember all the words of the chorus, everyone was far too drunk to care. The hungry beaver was now full to exploding, with townspeople who heard that Ashime was, in fact, alive. Some of those people who pushed up against her in a most familiar fashion she didn't even know. By now she was so intoxicated that she found herself greeting them like long-lost kin. The rest of her friends were busy circulating through the crowd. Rosa was behind the bar, out of Kustel's view, pouring his own generous mugs. Gustin and Crinis were attempting some sort of complicated circle dance. Even Merrick, leaning rather heavily on the bar, chatted to an enthralled merchant woman. But where was Jerris? Eshime whirled about, almost giddying herself. Where was Jerris? The snug she'd last seen it occupying now held a couple in a rather compromising position. Suddenly she was very afraid. Pushing people angrily out of the way, she made her way to Gustin and Crinis. Where's Jerris? She yelled in Gustin's ear. What? Deep breath in, and then an almighty bellow. Where is Jerris? Gustin broke away from the clutching woman and peered about him. Uh, it was over there by the door, last, last time I saw it. Well, it's not there now. Within a few minutes, she managed to get her four friends searching. After deftly avoiding more admirers, she gestured for them. They returned, shaking their heads and looking far more sober. Oh, sweet mother, 
she swore, trying to shake off the last of her drunkenness. Overcome with guilt, she realised that she should have kept a better eye on her friend. She'd only been thinking of her own enjoyment and had never considered Jerris's fear of this place. In her heart, she knew that it wouldn't have just wandered off. And it wasn't as if Jerris had coin to spend. A cold lump began to settle in her heart, along with a dreadful possibility. Shoving people brutally aside, she made for the door, stumbling a little. The others followed as best they could, sensing that trouble was in the air. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an E or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjvallanatine.net. On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.